My name is Joshua Walker. I am the uh, Executive Vice President of Eternity Bible College, which started, uh, as most of you know, last August. And we just started our second semester with uh, 98 students. And so praise the Lord for that. Uh, fantastic students. It's uh, really just such a joy for me to work with them. And in case you're wondering what it means for me to be Executive Vice President, what I tell people is, well, what Francis tells people is that he gets all the glory and I do all the work. But that's not exactly true. Because actually what it is is that all the people I work with do all the work. Francis gets all the glory and I get all the blame. And so that's kind of what I get to do. Um, but it is just one of the most amazing things. Um, you know, I see faces here this morning that are in class and stuff, and it's just a joy for me uh, to be able to teach and uh, just to continue to help students grow and on, on their walk there, and I'd love to see more of you there. But this morning... Um, it's my privilege to be able to share with you from a passage of scripture that's had really one of the most in, significant impacts on my life just because of personal circumstances and things that I've been through, which I'll share with you towards the end. Um, but I really want to just help us answer the question that all of us end up asking at some point in life. And if you haven't asked it, you will, and you're going to ask it more than once, and it's why is this happening? You're going to step back and you're going to look at your circumstances and you're going to say, God, why is this happening? Some of us will say it with the tone of, you know, just help me understand. Others are going to say it out of a little bit of anger. Why is this happening to me, God, after all that I've done? You know, at the services last night, one lady came up and told me that her brother was in the train wreck this past week. He survived, but she, she said, you know, I was asking this week, why is this happening? And I understand now why it's happening and what God wants me to do with it. And that's a difficult question for us. I mean, the, the thing about life for us, you know, just because you're a believer in Christ doesn't mean that all of a sudden everything becomes real nice and fun. In fact, sometimes it gets a lot worse. And what I want us to do this morning is to begin to just let the Scripture answer that question for us a little bit. And so that if it's happening now, you'll be able to have some answers. When it's happening in the future, you'll be able just to stand on the firm rock of what Scripture teaches about circumstances and what God's doing and what He wants to do through you and, and whether you're willing to go through that. And so hopefully we'll be able to do that. Um, if you want, you can begin to turn to the book of Philippians, but the, the, the most difficult burden, or not burden, obstacle for us, hindrance, to understanding Scripture is the fact that, like this book, was written 1,950 years ago on the other side of the world in a different language, in a different culture, and so for us, we kind of just step right into it, and it's like we're going to miss some things, and especially in terms of the historical background, we're going to miss the point that Paul's making here if we don't explain it. So... What I want to do is I want to tell a little bit of the story of where this book came from and, and why we have it here before us. And what was the church in Philippi all about? How did they end up with this letter? But to do so, I want to kind of tell it from a different perspective. I want us to think from the perspective of, of the Roman jailer who was there in Philippi. And so I, I need your help. I need a, a good Roman name. Let's see what we get. Not all at once. Say it louder. I hear people talking. Spartacus? What was over here? Guido? <laughs> Caesar. No, we can't do Caesar. Antony. Okay, we'll go with Antony. Why not? Last night someone yelled, Bob. And this morning someone said, how about Jorge? And I'm like, yeah, there's a comedian in every crowd. Yeah, that's funny. Um, what do we decide on? Anthony. Antony. Okay, so you're Antony, and you're the Roman jailer there in the city of Philippi. And just think of it from his perspective. Okay, what, what did you think of your city? Well, you were very proud of your city. 
your city was something special. It, it was over in the Greek portion of the Roman Empire, but you know what? Your city was different than all the cities around because your city was considered just as if it was part of the city of Rome. You didn't face taxation. You were considered citizens of Rome just like anyone else. And so you kind of walked around with your head held high. I'm a citizen of Philippi. It's just like saying I'm a citizen of Rome. So there was something special for you that it wasn't in the uh, cities around there. Other important thing is it was one of the most important cities of that area. It, it lies right on the border of Europe and Asia. It's just into Europe, and it lies on a very important trade route, which means that it made it a very cosmopolitan city. There were all kinds of people from all over Asia, Europe, that would travel through there. Goods were constantly coming through there. So it was a very important city from that perspective. And if you go through the book of Acts, you'd see that the Apostle Paul ends up in a lot of very important cities like that. Um, very important for the gospel, very strategic in his thinking. So the city of Philippi was very strategic from that perspective as well. And, and so as a in terms of religion there, it was very what we call syncretistic, which basically means that you know, you'd kind of take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, people would come through with theirs, and you'd pick some good ideas from that, and you'd assemble your belief system. And, hey, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. Anyways, reminds me of Los Angeles, right? I mean, that's, that's the way most people do think, is I just kind of take what I want from each thing and put it together. So that, that was kind of the background. And so you're there, Anthony, and you start to hear news from the East of kind of a new religion that started. And it sounds like it's a sect of Judaism, and yet it sounds very bizarre, quite frankly. I mean, I don't know if we realize it, but Christianity sounds, frankly, pretty bizarre when you first hear it. So God came as a man... And he came as a man who died. I mean, he came as a man, he came as a Jew who died then for people. What kind of ridiculous religion is this, is what you would have thought. And that's what most Greeks and most Romans thought of Christianity. It's ridiculous. It's, it's silly. Why would a God come and why would he die? If he was going to come as a man, he would come as a king and he would reign over everything. He wouldn't come to die. So you've been hearing this. And then one day, unbeknownst to you, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and probably Luke all arrive there in Philippi. And you don't know it because it's a pretty big city. And they end up going and uh, they lead a Jewish businesswoman named Lydia to Christ and start this thing called a church, which you also don't know anything about as well. And so they were over there doing their own thing and you still haven't gotten involved. And then Paul does something from your perspective would look pretty ridiculous, pretty stupid that he did. There was a, um, a young lady who was a slave girl. She was owned by some masters. And the reason they owned her is because she was possessed of a demon. And this enabled her to be able to foretell the future. So they would make a lot of money off of her. People would come, she would tell them the future, and they'd get some money. Well, Paul one day cast the demon out of her. She no longer can do that. And as you can imagine, this upsets the masters, right? So they get mad. They drag Paul and Silas out, and they start accusing them of things. A riot ensues, and they get beaten basically to a bloody pulp. Hey, you want to go on the mission field? Get beaten to a bloody pulp. Sounds exciting, huh? So that's what happens to Paul. This is where you, Antony, get involved as the Philippian jailer. You're the one that runs the jail, and now these two bloody pulps of men, Paul and Silas, are brought to you, and you're told to lock them up. And maybe they'll actually have a trial, and they'll do things the way they should have, rather than just through a riot. So you bring them in, you lock them in stocks, you put them in the innermost prison, and you come back out, and you're sitting there drinking your coffee, eating your donut, you know, just kicking back, waiting through the night, right? And all of a sudden, the strangest thing happens. They start singing. And they start singing praises to their God. And you're thinking, this is very, very weird. They've been beaten to an inch you know, of their life, 
and now they're here in prison and somehow they're praising their God who has gotten them into this mess? What is wrong with these guys? Right? And so if you were there and you were thinking about it, you'd be thinking, there's just something, they're just not, you know, lights are on by nobody's home. They're missing the point here. And you're thinking that and you're hearing them sing praises and then all of a sudden something happens. There's a huge earthquake. And there's dust everywhere. I mean, you didn't have electric lights. They didn't have structures like we would. You can just imagine that the lamps went out. There's dust everywhere. And the prison's basically been destroyed. Now, on the one hand, being a, a Roman jailer was kind of a nice job. You know, you got paid pretty well, worked for the Roman Empire. That was pretty good. But there was kind of a downside. And the downside was, if anyone gets out of the jail, if, if you lose anybody, you know what happens? You lose your life. So he realizes, okay, this earthquake's happened. These guys are all going to leave. I'm done. He takes out a knife and he's about to fall on his sword. And all of a sudden he hears a voice. He says, Antony, we're still here. Don't take your life. And something dramatic happens at that moment. That in the heart of that Philippian jailer, all of a sudden he realizes, this, there's something different. This is the true God. And somehow he's pierced the heart. When you, when you read the account in Acts 16... It's almost strange that he comes in, but something happened in the heart of that Philippian jailer that knew that he needed to be saved. And he comes in, the first thing he says to Paul and Silas, he falls down and says, what must I do to be saved? Something happened very dramatic at that moment for that man. And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all your household. And you, you take him in and this, this man who had been a stranger, had been bizarre to you just moments before, now becomes to be a friend. You take him home, he and Silas, you and your family, bandage him up, clean his wounds, and you now have joined this thing called the church. And you now sit next to a Jewish businesswoman and you're the Roman jailer and kind of a strange mix, you know, like churches tend to be. And you've now joined this family and, and Paul becomes an intimate friend for you. And as you read the different letters of Paul, you find that the, the Philippians was really one of the closest churches because they really understood his heart motivation better than any other church. They just had such a love relationship for one another. And one of the ways you know that is Paul travels from Philippi. He's not there too much longer. Um, he travels on uh, to Thessalonica and then on to Berea and then on to Athens and Corinth as he continues on his second missionary journey there. Well, Thessalonica, if, if any of you know, if you've read the book of Acts, you, you realize that he wasn't in Thessalonica very long, maybe three weeks, uh, maybe a month, not very long as best we can tell. It says at the end of the book of Philippians that more than once while I was in Thessalonica, you sent me a gift. You see, this church said, we care so much about what you're doing, Paul, that even in the, the first few weeks after you leave, we're going to... And realize, they couldn't just you know, like FedEx them a check. You had to actually gather the money and get somebody and send them over. More than once in those three to four weeks, they sent someone over because they believed in what Paul was doing. Now realize, Paul wouldn't take money from just any church because he realized that a lot of churches would impugn his motives, right? And he'd say, I could take money from you, but I know if I do, you'll think I'm doing it for the money, so I just won't. So he would take money from the Philippians because he knew that they knew his heart and they knew his, his motives. And so you just begin to see this intimacy that was built between Paul and this Philippian church and just how much they loved each other and they just had such a deep love. And then something happens. You know, over the years, they, they hear of Paul's ministry. They continue to support him. And Paul even speaks um, in the letter to the Corinthians. He says of how much he has spoken to them about the churches of Macedonia, which is Philippi. And then Paul goes to Jerusalem, and he's put in chains. 
And this is where things begin to get interesting. Because they had to be asking at that point, why God? I mean, if you were to stand back and you were going to say, okay, well, what would be the worst thing that could happen? If you were there in that early church and you said to yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen for the gospel to continue to go forth in the way that it has been? What's the worst possible thing? Putting the Apostle Paul in prison for five or six years is probably up on the list, right? This, this is not a good idea, God. Why is Paul in prison? So he, ends up, he, he gets put in chains, he ends up spending time in Caesarea, ultimately makes it to Rome after being shipwrecked, and, and we know the whole story. And so the church in Philippi, we, we get indications, and we'll see that in the letter, that they were wondering, what is God doing? Why is Paul in prison? Is, has God messed up? Has he made a mistake? And there's a lot of us that in your circumstances of life, you're asking the same question. Why is this happening? Has God made a mistake? Is something messed up here? And so Paul now is, is in Rome, and he's in Rome for several years. And so the church in Philippi, now Rome's close enough where they can actually send somebody. And, and in those days, what you could do is you could actually have someone come, and Paul's under house arrest, and they could send someone who would then come and be able to minister to Paul and help him, Right? So they give Epaphroditus, they pick a guy out of the church in Philippi, Epaphroditus, they give him some money and they say, here, take this to Paul and let him know that you are our hands to him. We can't all go to Rome, but we're going to send you, you do whatever you need to do to help him while he's there. And so they love him, they send Epaphroditus off. Word comes back to them, Epaphroditus is sick, sick maybe to the point of death. And so you get very concerned, and then all of a sudden one day Epaphroditus shows up. Now you'd send Epaphroditus to stay there until Paul was done. And so in your mind, you're like, wait a minute, wait, you're not supposed to be back yet. Why are you here? And Epaphroditus says, I brought a letter. The Apostle Paul, from his imprisonment in Rome, has sent you a letter, and we need to get together as a church to read it. That's the book of Philippians. That's where you'd be when you begin to read this book, is you'd be sitting there in the church, wondering, why is Paul in prison? Why is Epaphroditus back? What is going on? What is God doing? And all of a sudden, Epaphroditus brings, and you pick up the letter and begin to read. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 1, if you're not there already, I'm not going to go through the first. I'm going to pick up in verse 12. Um, verses 3 through 11 talk of Paul's prayer for them. And there's an issue there which would be a sermon for another day. But as you note through there, note all the times that Paul says, all of you, all of you. I pray for all of you. I care for all of you. There's the sense that there was disunity in that church and that Paul wanted them to know, I don't have favorites. It's not like Antony and Lydia are my favorites and the rest of you aren't. I care about all of you. And he says that over and over through his prayer for them and of how thankful he is for them because of their partnership with him in the gospel. But he gets down to verse 12 and he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So all of a sudden he says something to them. I want you to know about my circumstances. Their ears would have perked up, right? Yeah, you're in prison. We've been wondering what's going on. Now I want you to know about my circumstances, he said. And I want you to know something different than what you believe. There's a word in the original uh, Greek that doesn't get translated into the English very well, and so it just isn't in your translations. It's the word contrary or the word rather. So what Paul's saying is this is the opposite of what you're thinking. right? You are there, and he understands that they're there. He's, been, he's talked to Epaphroditus. You're thinking that my imprisonment is a hindrance to the gospel. right? You think this is a bad thing. And he says, no, you're actually wrong. It's not a, a hindrance. It actually has worked for the advancement or the progress of the gospel. And so it, it's just fascinating that God works in such different ways than we would expect. And Paul says, look at this differently, Philippians. And I say to you this morning, look at your circumstances differently. The things that you think are bad oftentimes are what God, oftentimes, all times, God is using them for good. 
And he's using them often in terms of the progress of the gospel or the advancement of the gospel. Now, there's a second word that he uses here, and it's translated either advancement or progress. Kind of a strange word. It means to cut ahead. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Um, I'll give you two illustrations to hope, hopefully help you understand what he means by advancement or progress there. Is there anyone that, that's been a farmer? Yeah, Casey, I knew you'd be here once, so at least we'd have one. Um, you've heard of farmers, though, right? <laughs> Everybody has? Okay, good. I'm okay then on this one. Um, if, if there was just hard ground, um, I, I lived for a few years in San Pedro, and where we lived it was clay, and man, it was just hard ground. If I just took some seed and you threw it out there on, on that hard ground, ain't nothing going to happen. It's just going to sit there, that, you know, like the parable that Jesus tells of the soils, it's just going to come and the birds are going to pick it up. The word that Paul uses here is like what a plow does, is that if you want that seed to take root, you have to cut through that hard ground. And the thing is that there, there are people here who had hard hearts, and you know what I mean. You were hard soil, and you heard the good news, and you pushed it away and pushed it away. There's probably some here this morning that have continued to push it away, and you're even pushing it away this morning, and you are part of that hard ground. Well, I'll tell you what God does. God will take you through circumstances that will peel that open and break open that hard ground. And Paul says that's what your circumstances are there for. And he says that's what my circumstances are here for. I want you to understand something different, Philippians. Our circumstances work to break open hard ground so the seed of the gospel can then be planted in a way that it couldn't otherwise. Another illustration, and it's actually one of the ways that this word is used in Greek literature outside of the Bible. It's used in a military sense. And if you know of the, the way the, the, an army is put together, we, there's the fighting force kind of part, but there's other support groups as well. One of those support groups, what in the U.S. Army you'd call the Army Corps of Engineers, their role, and they had them in Roman and Greek armies of their day as well, their role is to basically go ahead of the main force and to prepare a way and to remove obstacles, make sure the bridges will support you know, the army that's going to come through, um, you know, build whatever needs to be built, just basically make sure that when the army comes through, they don't have to stop for anything. They can just keep moving down the road. You got it? Paul says that's what, the what circumstances do for the gospel. There's obstacles to the gospel, right? And you know what they are. There were some in your life. There may still be some in your life. What God will do is he'll take circumstances and he'll start knocking those obstacles out of the way so that now the gospel can reach your heart and can reach people's hearts. You see the picture of the advancement, the progress that it can make by, by cutting through and by removing obstacles. And then Paul gives us, beginning in verse 13, he, he's going to tell us, uh, show us two specific ways that this has worked in his life and to give us encouragement as well. In the first one, in verse 13, he says, So my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole either palace guard or praetorian guard and to everyone else. So Paul says that not only are we to realize that it's all about the gospel and that our circumstances cut ahead, but he says here's one of the ways that it does it. Your circumstances and his circumstances are sometimes the only way that certain people are going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and if you look at the illustration, Paul talks about the palace guard or the praetorian guard. This is a group of 9,000 men. Their specific job was to protect the emperor and to handle all of the emperor or the, the Caesar's business there in Rome. And they were, the best way to, for analogy for us is the secret service in the United States, right? They're there to primarily protect the president. So let's say we were to get together and we were going to have a missions conference, right? And the specific goal of our missions conference is we're going to say, how are we going to reach the secret service? 
Here's a group of people we've singled out. We decided we're going to come up with a plan of how we're going to reach the Secret Service. Okay, so let's just think about them for a minute. Well, pretty much every time you see them in public, they're not going to listen to anything you have to say, right? Because the only people they're looking for is anyone who's trying to threaten the president. So, and you go up to them and start talking to them, and they just ignore you. They're going to look over your head unless you keep bugging them, and then they'll just arrest you. So how am I going to reach these people? And you kind of step back from it, and you realize you get kind of stumped. You know, how are we going to reach them? Well, for them, if they decided how are they going to reach the Praetorian Guard, it would have been about the same thing. I don't know. We can't get anywhere near them. And if we do, they're not going to listen to us. So what had happened? Paul's under house arrest. Well, part of house arrest, and because he'd appealed to the Caesar, right? he was specifically under the Caesar's guard, what that meant is that every six hours, two new members of the Praetorian Guard had to spend the next six hours with him. And they had to sit there, and they not only had to listen to him talk to them, but he could have Bible studies. He actually, people could come and, and be there with him. It wasn't, you know, like, quite like we'd think of being in prison. So people would come, so they'd have to listen to him talk to them as well as tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so over the course of two years, these guys all cycled through. So Paul says, look, here's a group that we, we never could have figured out a way to reach them. And now they've got them here. I've got a captive audience. I get to share with two of these guys every six hours, and they get to listen to the reality that Jesus Christ came and died for their sins. Paul says, realize that. And for each one of you, you know, when you find yourself in those circumstances, look around. There's people that are there that God wants to reach with the good news. He wants them to know about Jesus Christ. And he's put you there and put you in those circumstances so that you can tell them. And you may be the only one who's been put there. And that thing that has brought you there, that thing, whatever it is, that circumstance, that disease, that trial, whatever, isn't what it's about. It's about that person that was there that God wants to save. And God has sent you with the message to save him. Right? And he says not only the Praetorian Guard, but he says to everyone else. And the best we can tell, because later in the letter, Paul says, those of Caesar's household greet you. So those that were some actually of his household had become believers. So to the everyone else, I, I believe the way he's talking about is the upper crust of Roman society. That right there in Rome, and again, if we, if we said, okay, we're not only going to reach the Secret Service, but what we want to do is we actually want to reach Washington, D.C., the you know, upper part of the political structure of the United States. We're going we're to reach the cabinet, the president. Um, we're going to reach the representatives and the senators. We're going to reach them all. Again, you're just going to have trouble with that, right? How am I going to have any sort of a inroads with them? I'm never going to have an opportunity to talk to these people. Maybe one, but how are we going to actually reach out to all of them? Paul had that same opportunity. There would be people there. They kept coming through. He was right involved in all of that and was able to share the gospel with them. There are people that can only be reached through certain circumstances. So, so view your circumstances in that light. And then he says another thing. Beginning in verse 14. Oh, before I move on to that, though, I, I wanted just to say, going back to, to our, our guy Anthony, right? When Paul says this, wouldn't he have gotten it? Because how did he come to know Jesus Christ? Paul got thrown in prison, right? Thrown in jail there in Philippi. So a light would have went on for him. He would have said, you're right. Just like how it came to me. And you had to be thrown in prison for me. Now I understand, Paul. I understand what God's doing. God's thrown you in prison for some people, some other people. And you're going to find yourself in those circumstances and you want to be able to share the gospel. But for all, a lot of us, and it's like, okay, we're getting, yeah, okay, so when we're in that circumstance, we're going to be able to share the gospel. 
But the thing is, for a lot of us, sharing the gospel is scary. Because it's like we know it, but we don't know what to say. Okay, I'm supposed to share the gospel with this guy. I know it. I know you want me to share the gospel with God. You've got me here. I got this flat tire. This guy came along. I know I'm supposed to share the gospel with him. What do I say? Um, so, you uh, heard of Jesus Christ? What? Are you weird? What are you talking about? Yeah, you're right. Just forget it. You know, that's the kind of way it happens for us sometimes. And so, here we are talking about, you know, be pre- look for these circumstances, but I also want you to be prepared. And as the, the elders and the pastors of the church are so committed to want you to be prepared, there's, um, it, within your bulletin, there's a blue sheet that talks about the evangelism class that um, Johnny Carls teaches, our, our pastor of outreach. And it's just a fantastic class that's designed to help you when you're at that point not feel like a total idiot and not feel like you've got two heads because you're sharing the gospel, right? It's like all of a sudden I'm going to share the gospel. Whoop, I just grow another head. Yeah, I feel really weird now, but I'm supposed to do this. I feel obligated to. And just to realize how to do it as who you are. And so I encourage you that if you feel that way, if you really want to be equipped, it's a fantastic class, fantastic material in there. Um, it'll really help you in those opportunities as well as make new opportunities um, for the gospel. Now realize this. God's ways are not as clean and neat and pretty as we'd like them to be. And that's what we see with Paul, right? We, we might package it nicely, and if we were to figure out God's plan to reach the world, we might have packaged it real nice and neat where everyone didn't have to get dirty to get it done. But God says, no, I'm doing it a different way. And he says, listen, all of you that are Christians, I paid a price for you, and you're now mine, and I'm going to use you in a way that may end up you lose your life. And Paul later in verse 21, he's going to say, for me to live is Christ. And that's the foundational, important understanding that you have to have if you're going to live this way. Life has to be all about Jesus Christ. And you have to understand, and not just that, oh, I added Jesus Christ to my life to kind of, you know, I can still live a good life or, you know, live life however I want to, but hey, it's my guarantee when I get to the end. No, you've been bought with a price. And what he says is, it's no longer my life to live, it's now his. And he now lives through me, and he wants to do what he wants to do with my life. And are you willing to do that? I just want to ask you, are you really willing to do whatever God wants you to do? And, and I want you to think through that this week as well. Just think through, are you willing? If you were to answer, you know, when it says verse 21, for me to live is Christ, I just ask you, you know, fill in this blank. For me to live is... Spend some time thinking about that. And then ask yourself, what would my spouse say? What would my children say? What would my neighbors say? What would my coworkers say? For me to live is what? And if it's anything other than Christ, think about some changes you need to make. To make it all about Christ and, and being willing to be used by him in the way that the Apostle Paul was. Now beginning in verse 14, he says, not only do I actually get to reach people that couldn't have been reached any other way, but he says also, verse 14, most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now Paul says, and, and it's something that we all understand, Paul says, in my circumstances, not only have I been able to reach people, but I've also given boldness to others by doing what I'm doing. And now we know this, right? What happens when you hear stories of people that are in a persecuted land and you hear of them 
standing firm for the gospel. Doesn't that make you say, if they can do it there, I can do it here. Right? That, it gives us boldness then. And Paul says, realize that. And so I, w- I want you to think about this from two perspectives. One is I encourage you to read biographies and understand what is going on and what God is doing. Biographies of people in the past, understand what God's doing today, and let that give you boldness and courage to look back at the past where, I mean, we live here in a place where we're just not persecuted, right? I mean, yeah, pers- people make fun of you or whatever. That's not persecution. Come on. I mean, you look back and you see guys that would actually die for their faith. And hopefully that will give you more boldness here because we're not persecuted, but we tend to be the least bold still in spite of it. Persecution does bring out boldness instead. Allow the persecution of others to bring out boldness in you. And then on the flip side of that, also realize in your circumstances, people are watching you and fellow Christians are watching you. And you may be in your workplace, you may be going through something, and when you stand firm for the gospel and you're able to share the love of Jesus Christ in that situation, others are going to be emboldened by that as well. Realize you have an effect far beyond what you ever realize. There are more people watching you than you realize. And so just realize that, whatever circumstance you're going through. Now, Paul gives two different groups here. And on the one hand, there's the group that said, okay, Paul's now been taken out, so what do I need to do? I need to step into the gap, right? And they said, there are those that realize, I was appointed for the defense of the gospel, and now that I've been taken out of the way, I need to step in and fill that gap. And, and that should be the right motivation. He says that's the right motivation, and we need to do that, is step in and fill that gap. But he says there's other ones um, who let their phones ring at church. Um, and they're the ones out of envy and strife. Never leave that on again, will you? Um, there's another one. And, and I get the sense that Paul almost chuckles at them. Because there are those, and they think like this. They think you know what? Church is all about how many I get. It's how many people I lead to Christ. It's how many people come to my church. And it's all about me. And they believe Paul thinks the same way. So now it's like Paul's been taken out of the picture. It's like, hey, you know, one of the big hitters is now gone. We can start getting them coming to my church. I can start leading people to Christ. And that's the way they're thinking. And they're thinking they're going to cause Paul pain. And he just almost laughs. He says, this is silly. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about people coming to Christ. And so he says, whether in pretense or in love, as long as Christ is proclaimed, in this I rejoice. And now, now note carefully, Paul's not saying that I don't care what someone teaches, right? He's saying as long as Christ is preached. To Paul, the essential is that it's about Jesus Christ. So he's not just saying, hey, whatever anyone wants to do and hey, where everyone wants to go. He's saying as long as Christ is preached, that's the most important thing to me. And as we consider, you know, It's like, okay, here we come to Cornerstone. There's lots of other churches. We don't look down on them, right? It's all about Christ and his kingdom, and we work together for that kingdom. It's about Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul wants it to be all about for us. Now, I said at the beginning that part of the reason that this um, passage speaks to me so much or, or why it's been so important in my life and why I want to share it with you is because of personal experience in my own life. And I hope just to share this with you as a, as a word of encouragement for you and um, yeah, I'll just, I, I wasn't born in a Christian home. Uh, neither of my parents were believers. They divorced when I was about two years old. Uh, my dad became a believer when I was about seven, and yet I spent very little time with him. So basically, all through growing up, I had no um, real Christian influence. At age 18, I began to really, truly follow the Lord. Um, God had been working on me for quite a while, but at, that, at age 18, I began to just 
I, I set my mind to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things, as you'd imagine, that I begin to do was to pray for my mom. And I began to pray that my mom would come to know Jesus and that she would know his love. And it was a long struggle. It was a very long struggle. And there were times when I began to lose heart and I began to say, God, I just don't know. I don't see any way. You know, I talk about hard ground. She was concrete. I mean, it, it just... And coming from her son was even worse, right? It was like, you know, you can't tell me. And so anytime I try to talk to her, she'd just want to argue and i just have to kind of walk away from it. And, it. and it was very, very hard for a long time. And God needed something to break open that ground. And that thing came in about 1999. I was driving the car and I, for some weeks I'd been noticing a strange numbness that I'd been having in my legs and hadn't really thought much of it. So I finally told my wife, I said, well, you know, I should probably go see the doctor. And he told me, well, take your wallet out of your back pocket and put it in your front pocket. Okay, I'll do that. You know, so I'm still, here it is, front pocket. Um, nah, it didn't help. He says, okay, well, I'm going to send you to a neurologist. Um, to make a long story short, over the, the course of several months, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which I didn't know anything about going into that, um, but then I began to understand. And for my wife and I, being believers, there was a certain rock that we had to stand on. And it was a little bit harder than it, for her than it was for me, and that's the way it is oftentimes. Um, but I understood, you know, God was going to do something, but I didn't know what. But for my mom, it was different. And for those of you that have children, you can understand this a little bit better, that there's a devastation that the mom, a mom feels when she finds out that something like that has happened to her 27-year-old son now is diagnosed with a possibly debilitating disease. And it was that thing that shattered her worldview. She said good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And why can this possibly be happening to you? And what that did is it broke open the hard ground. And the gospel was able, able to come to my mom. And she's a believer in Jesus Christ today. And I wholeheartedly believe that that was something God had to do in my life in order to lead her to Jesus Christ. And there was a point, and I don't say this in any way, you know, is any big deal for me, but there was a point where I just stepped back and I realized what God was doing. And I said to God, in all honesty, if it requires me to be completely disabled for the rest of my life to bring my mom to Jesus Christ, I want you to do it. Wholeheartedly say, I want you to do it. I want you to do what you've got to do. And I just want to ask you, how far are you willing to go? And the reason I say it's no big deal for me because it was my mom, right? I mean, for your mom, of course. Paul did it for strangers. Paul said, I'm willing to go to prison and, and do this and be persecuted and beaten with rods. I'm willing to do it because I love people that hate me. And that is a reflection of the heart of Jesus Christ. Who it says in Romans chapter 5 that even while we were enemies, while we hated him, he came to die for us. He didn't come to die for those that already loved him and couldn't wait for him to come. It was those that were in opposition to him and would spit on him. He came to die for those. And I just want to know, are you willing to follow in those footsteps? Because it may be difficult circumstances that God's going to take you through in order to bring the gospel to some of those people that you may not really like? And are you willing to be used of God like that?